All right, you guys, we're heading over to the book of James this morning. We are heading over to the book of James. Um, if you don't have a Bible, grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 1013. 1013, James uh, chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 11 and 12 this morning. Now, um, in introduction, uh, it has become clear um, over the last year uh, that, that uh, surrounding the 2016 election, um, there was a tremendous amount of meddling from foreign agents in an attempt to undermine the stability and integrity of our democracy, the stability and integrity of our culture. Of course, the Russian government, we now know, uh, waged a cyber attack on the United States. Um, and um, they were ultimately seeking to just create instability uh, that would make us vulnerable on the world scale. Uh, we know they hacked the DNC servers, releasing information that could be used politically uh, to sway the election. They, they did a number of things. Nobody really knows how much of an impact their, their activities had on, on what took place. Um, but we do know that part of their extensive propaganda campaign in the United States was, in fact, to release thousands of ads on social media. In fact, um, about three weeks ago, Congress released uh, all the ads uh, that, that we know um, the Russians planted on social media. It was just a little over 3,500 ads uh, that they ran on social media over the course of about a year and a half, two years. Um, and when you look at these ads, it really is crazy. Um, I, I went through and I kind of scanned through them. Um, and it doesn't seem to make sense. I mean, honestly, when you, when you look through, right, there are some, some that created pages that were pro-gun control, like hardcore pro-gun control. They were putting out memes and comments, and, right? And then, and then they also created um, pro-gun reform pages, right? Like, like, like all about the evils of, of specific weapons, and, and they, they, they created pro-Black Lives Matter pages, Right, memorial pages to African Americans who um, who had been uh, killed or or, or uh, you know, different different high high publicity events, but they also created pro Confederacy pages, all about uh, uh, American heritage, not hate heritage, right, and 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 all about the Confederate flag. Some of these pages were funny. Some of these pages were angry. And they were all over the place. I mean, literally, there was a page that was pro-Beyonce and another page that was anti-Beyonce. Like, you can't make this stuff up, right? I mean, it's like, it was, it was kind of insane. You look at it and you wonder if there was some powerful guy in the Russian government that had a, a 13-year-old nephew that needed a job, right? He's like, hey, just go see if you can cause some trouble over here. You know what I'm saying? Like, like you know that Internet's stuff. Just go do some stuff on the Internet's to cause trouble. Um, but you guys, here's the thing. Their, their propaganda campaign was actually brilliant because they don't care who's right or wrong. I mean, they literally do not care who's right or wrong or if there even is a right or wrong. The only thing they care about is increasing conflict. The only thing they care about is puffing up people's pride and getting them to lash out in fear toward people that they disagree with, toward people they don't understand, toward people who have perspectives and ideas 
that are foreign or alien to them. They were basically appealing to our need to feel superior to others. They don't care what the topic is. They don't care what your point is. They don't care what your platform is. They don't care what your persuasion is. They simply want to inflame your need to feel superior toward others, to make you feel like you are right and they are wrong because then you will feel completely justified in judging those who don't agree with you. Now, here's the thing, you guys. The Russians didn't create this impulse in us. They just figured out how to exploit it. Right? That impulse is already embedded in our hearts as those who have rebelled against God and are continually, daily, trying to compete with God. Right? We are trying to get the fullness of life from a God uh, without the presence of that God. We, we want the blessings of God without the presence or authority of God. We, we want to be like God. And because we are pursuing all the fullness of life without wanting to submit to the God who gives it, we are continually competing with each other, with God, with resources. And James this morning is calling out the worldly currents of our heart, uh, specifically the way we use our tongues to express um, our judgments. The way we use our tongue uh, to puff up our pride and, and destroy our enemies. And he is calling us this morning to the freedom of grace. So let's take a look at James chapter 4. James chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at... Um, Verses 11 and 12. I'll read aloud. You go ahead and follow along. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy but who are you to judge your neighbor? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. All right, that's, that's it, man. That's, that's, that's our command for today, right? That's, that's the, the exhortation. That's his imperative, right? Just don't speak evil about each other, right? Can we just leave it at that and go home, right? Don't just stop it. Don't speak evil about one another. And some of you are like, all right, sweet, short sermon. Let's go get lunch, right? This is, this is nice. I can do that. But you guys, I think you know it's not as easy as that, right? Uh, the Greek word, there's one word that is translated don't speak evil, uh, katalaleo. Katalaleo is a Greek word that, that means evil speech, uh, speech that is designed to slander, Speech that is designed to tear down, to misrepresent, to disrepute, uh, to, to otherwise hurt someone. It includes lying, misrepresenting, exaggerating, insulting, derogatory jokes, uh, and otherwise casting shade, right? Just, just seeking to, 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 to make someone look bad, right? It covers a super broad category of communications, katalaleo. And here's where it gets challenging, because katalaleo covers spoken word, right? So when we use our speech uh, to, to harm someone, to insult someone, to degrade someone, uh, to their face or behind their back, 
um, as a joke, ha ha ha, that was funny, can't you take a joke? Or, or as an insult, you're a jerk and I'm, I'm gonna actually attack you now. Um, or, or completely in another setting, you know, like, hey, did you hear what so-and-so said? Or did you hear what so-and-so did, right, in, in innocent forms of gossip? Uh, when we use our words in any way to make someone else look bad, right? But it also includes written words. Not just spoken words, but written words, right? So, so every time you handwrite a letter, oh, wait, what was that? We don't do that anymore. Um, every time you type an email, every time you create a social media post, Every time you repost a social media post, that funny meme or that, 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 that great burn that you repost because it burns the people you don't like and makes the, the thing that you do like seem so great, katalaleo. Anytime you use your words, spoken or written, to degrade, to defame, to misrepresent, to tear down, right, to disrepute. Now, here's the thing. It also includes the words you never speak. The words you think, right? the words that you never actually allow to escape from your mouth, the words that run through your head when you look at somebody and, and they're outside the circle of your approval, they, they, are not, they are not people that you like or want to like, they, they are people that you, 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 you want to be away from or you like to judge or you like to look down on, it even includes the unspoken words that often do come out in all the other forms of language, like your body language, your facial expressions, even the presence, like that your choice to be physically present with somebody or physically absent from somebody. Those are all choices that, are, that speak a language, right? Katalaleo includes all of those forms of communication, right? So, so what I want you to catch is this is not um, your grandmother's advice, right? If you don't have something nice to say, don't say it at all, right? That doesn't cut it. Not with James. James isn't saying just don't say it. Catalaleo includes all the things you don't say but wish you could. Catalaleo includes all the things you don't say and you don't think anyone knows you're even saying, but you are. He is talking about repenting and leaving behind all the speech, all the speech that nurtures our own bitterness, that expresses our own pride, that, 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 that gives voice to our fear, uh, that, that makes us feel superior to others. Now, if we're going to be able to do that, we need to understand why we do it. Right? Because I think at this point, most of us are feeling like, uh, I don't think I can obey this command. <laughs> um, I, I mean, I can potentially hold my tongue a good portion of the time, but I can't hold my brain. I can't stop the words from actually flowing up from my heart into my mind, right? Why are we so driven to speak evil things of others? Why are we so driven to be judgmental? Why are we so driven to cast shade, to, to, to disrepute people, to, to, to mock people, to, to make people, to try to humiliate people who disagree with us? How are, why are we so driven? Take a look at the end of verse 11, and you'll see um, In verse 11, do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother 
or judges his brother. Now, these aren't two different things. These are the same thing in this construction, right? What he's saying is to speak evil of your brother is to judge your brother, right? These are parallels. And so, um, the one who speaks against his brother, the one who judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. All right, you guys, let's just be honest. We love to be the judge. We love to be the judge, right? There's two seats we can sit in according to James. You can be the doer of the law or you can be the judge of the law, right? You can be the one who sits as a doer. Now, the thing with the doer is they're under the law, right? They, they have an obligation to the law. They have to fulfill the law. And according to James, we already know what law he's talking about here. He's not talking about the Ten Commandments per se. He is talking about the royal law that we've already talked about. He's talking about the law of love, right? You shall love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself, right? It is the, 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 the heart of the law. Because if you love God and if you love your neighbor, you'll fulfill the Ten Commandments, right? Because the heart of, of love ultimately leads to an expression of obedience, to God and the way he has wired us to live in this world, right? And so it's the law of love. And, and so he's saying, you're either going to be a doer of the law, somebody who recognizes you have an obligation to your creator, to your, 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 your God, and, and you're going to live it out in a sense of obligation, or you're going to be a judge of the law. And the judge of the law, the nice thing about being a judge of the law is that you sit over the law. You get to apply it to others. You get to measure them. And determine whether or not they measure up or whether they fall short. You get to be above them. And there's something incredibly intoxicating about being above others and measuring them and finding that they fall short. It gives us a sense of power and control and comfort. It gives us the illusion that we really do know what is right and wrong. That, that we really are not insane. Um, it flatters the lie that we desperately want to believe that we can, in fact, be like God. I can determine what is right or wrong. I can measure other people's worth. I, I know what is right, and you're a fool because you don't agree with me. It flatters the Genesis 3 lie, that, 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 that first lie that our parents bought into they could be like God. They didn't have to submit to God. They, they could submit to themselves. They, they didn't have to revolve around God. They could revolve around themselves. They didn't have to live for God's glory. They could establish their own glory. They didn't have to live in dependency on God for security. They could fight for their own security. They, they didn't have to, to, to look to God to be God. They could be like God. And, and when we are in the seat of the judge, man, it just feeds that lie in our soul. It makes us feel right. When we seek to tear someone down, to hurt them, um, to silence them, to discredit them, to humiliate them, we are sitting in the seat of the judge and we are passing judgment. We are essentially, what we're saying is, is you deserve this humiliation because you think differently than I do about guns. You deserve this humiliation because you think differently than I do about politics. You deserve this humiliation because you think differently than I do about this politician. You deserve this humiliation. 
I get to sit in the seat of the judge and declare judgment. You are worthless. And you better figure it out. Figure it out fast. And start agreeing with me to regain your worth. You deserve this humiliation. You, you deserve this correction. You deserve this, this rejection. We have weighed them and found them worthy of kalalaleo, words of rejection, words of dehumanization, words that rob them of their dignity, words that seek to undermine their independence. Now here's the thing, my words don't actually diminish anyone's value. I don't know if you figured that out yet. The things that you say don't actually make things true. Have you figured that out? Right, like if I go into to an art museum and I look at a piece of art and I'm like, what a piece of rubbish. I don't even know who the artist is. I know nothing about the time period in which it was painted, but I have declared it a piece of rubbish, and because I have said it, it must be true, right? My words don't define the worth of something outside of myself. I I don't actually change the value of a piece of work just because I say it, nor do I define your value if I kataleo, if I speak words that hurt you. Now, it might hurt you, and you might internalize those words, and you might actually believe the lie that I'm speaking out, in which case I'm speaking words of death into your soul, but I don't actually change anything about you. When I speak, I'm not revealing things about you. I'm revealing things about me. When I speak these degrading words about you, I'm not revealing anything about your soul, but I am revealing a lot about my own, my insecurity, my fear, my pride, my desperate need to be right. I'm assuming that I can sit in the seat of the judge. And James is telling us that's an incredibly dangerous place to sit. I am no longer sitting in the seat of the doer of the law. I am sitting in the seat of the judge over the law. And take a look at verse 12. In verse 12, James makes it clear, there is only one lawgiver and judge He who is able to save and to destroy. And who are you to judge your neighbor? James is is, is, is like, hey, um, do you know whose seat you're in? Do, Do you know who you're pretending to be? You seem pretty comfortable in that chair. I don't think you want to be there. That's not a good spot to be, because when the king shows up, and you're acting like you're him, you're going to have to give an answer for your pride. He actually has the ability to save or destroy. His words actually establish reality. What you're pretending to, to be and to do, he really is. I don't think you want to be in his chair, right? He can actually save and destroy. All we can do is pretend to do it. Um, so there's a book in the Bible called Jude. It's another one of those little books at the back of the Bible that, that a lot of people forget is there. It's a beautiful one-chapter letter. Um, and it tells an interesting story in Jude 
about Michael the Archangel. Michael the Archangel, we don't know the context. It's actually a really weird reference. Um, But apparently at one point, Michael the Archangel had an argument with the devil about the body of Moses. We don't know what the argument was about. We don't know the context of the situation, but I want you to read this verse. I'm going to put it on the screen behind me. This is Jude 9. It's only one chapter, so you only get a verse. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. All right, think about this for a second. This is Michael the archangel. Michael the archangel, right? Kind of powerful, you know, like, like glorious, you know, like actually has walked in the presence of God, was there at the creation of, of humanity, has, has, has sung the very glory of God in the very presence. This is Michael the archangel. And he's arguing with the devil, Right? Not somebody who just disagrees with him. He's arguing with the freaking devil. You can't get more wrong than the devil. You can't become more theologically insane than the devil. You can't be more ignorant or stupid or or have a worse outcome to your actions than the devil. And yet, Michael the archangel did not presume to sit in the seat of the judge. He did not presume to make, it says, a blasphemous judgment. See, to sit in the seat of the judge would be to take God's seat, and that would be blasphemy. Michael the archangel had enough common sense to know that he couldn't sit in that seat that he could not pronounce the judgment of God. He could not establish anyone's worth. It wasn't his job. It wasn't his seat. So what did he do? He appealed to the one whose job it actually is. The Lord rebuke you. Not me. The Lord rebuke you. I will not declare your worth, he will. I will not determine your destiny, he will. I will not speak of, 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 of the value of your nature. He, that is his job. I will not presume to be blasphemous. The Lord rebuke you. If Michael the archangel wouldn't feel comfortable calling out the devil, how arrogant are we for calling out people we disagree with about the, 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 the I don't know, you pick it, Right? The, the color of the carpet, right? I mean, the, 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 whether or not you should wear cargo pants in public. I mean, we'll, we, will, we will become arrogantly prideful about the most ignorant things. So James leaves us with a compelling question at the end of the verse. He says, who are you to judge your neighbor? Steve's translation, who do, who do you think you are? Seriously, who do you think you are? That you can occupy a seat that Michael the archangel himself refused to take. This is worldliness. To claim to follow God, but then set yourself up as God. 
to claim to be a follower of Christ, but then not put yourself in a position as a doer of the law of love and instead setting yourself up as a judge of the law where you can determine the worth and the value of people who agree or disagree with you. It is evil. It is evil. Even if it's popular. Because it is tremendously popular, isn't it? There's a reason people do it. It creates political coalition. It, it creates movement. It, it, it gives you the illusion of power and success. It makes you feel like you have a tribe. It, it, it gives you a sense of momentum. It, it, it feeds the lie that you are, in fact, moving toward the fullness of life apart from the presence of God. And you guys, I don't know if you've noticed, but religious people are doing this as much, if not more, than the rest of our culture. It's interesting that when we look at the ads that came out from the Russians, one of the specific groups that they targeted, and in fact targeted most heavily, conservative Christians. Because that was an entire block that could be moved with pride and fear. That tells us something about the state of uh, American Christianity that we need to be incredibly careful of. Because James is telling us this is not the place you want to be. This is not the seat you want to sit in. So you guys, how do we obey this command? How How do we not speak evil words? How do we actually do this? Because it's not just about what we say. It's about why we say it, right? It's not just about the fruit of our tongue. It is about the root of of bitterness or fear or pride that drives our tongue, right? It is an issue of the heart. So it can't simply be about pruning the fruit. It has to be about uprooting the, the root, our prideful need to sit and judge. So how do we do this? Let me just give you a few things. First, you absolutely have to be loved in order to love. This is first and foremost. Seriously, if you want to be freed from your addiction to feeling superior toward others, you have to learn to be loved. The reason you need to feel superior to others is because of your deep insecurity. The reason you are lashing out in fear, trying to silence people who you you disagree with or trying to attack people who, who make you feel threatened is because you feel so insecure. The only thing in the universe that can meet your need for security, significance, for for comfort and for pleasure is the love of God. The infinite love of God poured out to you through the sacrifice of his son because Jesus lived the life that you should have lived and died the death you deserved to die and he rose again so that you could be cleansed and forgiven. You could be made new. That is radical love. God did not sit in self-righteous judgment above us, casting shade, disreputing, calling out our weaknesses, mocking our failures. Instead, he entered into our story and so fully identified with our brokenness that he took that brokenness to the cross and died in our place. So that when he rose again, we might be loved. And in being loved, be renewed, forgiven, cleansed. We need to receive with meekness, as James says, the implanted word. If you guys remember that from chapter 1, that's James's way of saying we need to keep receiving that grace, not simply coming to Christ and making a decision for Christ, or, but, but actually believing the gospel daily, like actually fighting to believe this true message every day. 
that I am loved by God, and that that love is not conditional on my performance or my behavior. It is unconditionally given to me in grace. Yes, God measures you in mercy, and he blesses you in grace. Do you know that to be true? God measures you in mercy and blesses you in grace. Mercy means we don't get what we do deserve. He measures you in mercy. And he blesses you in grace. Grace is that God gives us what we don't deserve. So he doesn't hold us to account for all the ways we failed, and he blesses us with all the things we could never earn. If that message of love doesn't humble your heart, you don't understand that message of love. If that message does not undo your pride, then you're not receiving it as love. You might be receiving it, you might be attempting to receive it as a means to an end, a way to get what you want, but you're not receiving it as love because if you're receiving it as love, it absolutely will undo the pride of your heart. You need to be loved in order to love. You need to let that love undo your pride and humble your need to judge others because you realize that you yourself are measured in mercy and blessed in grace. And if you are measured in mercy and blessed in grace, man, who are you to measure others according to your standards and your laws and your expectations, blessing them only as you see fit? Right? When you're loved, man, it frees you to love. Second thing is you need to trust God to be God. You need to trust God to be God. A lot of the times, the reason we're so intent on sitting in the seat of the judgment is because we don't trust God to do it. If I don't make them stand for truth, who will? <laughs> yeah, who will? I mean, really, who will? God? <laughs> the God of truth? If I don't, if I don't speak up, in, for, you got to trust God to be God. Trust God to bring justice where justice is right. And trust God to extend grace in ways that are holy and good, even if you don't like it. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't speak the truth in love. There are times that we are called in the grace of God to speak up for the marginalized and the abused, to give voice to those who have no voice, to, to ultimately seek to bring the justice of God into the broken systems of this world. We are called by the grace of God to move out in this way. But, but here's the thing. In doing that, we must do it not pretending to be God, but in absolute dependence on God. We, we are not trying to become the presence of God in this world. We are seeking to honor the work of God in this world. We need to trust God to be God. See, there's a radical difference in working for justice because I think somehow it's dependent on me and working for justice because I'm honoring the God of justice and I'm trusting him to bring it. Trust God to be God. Trust God to bring conviction to behavior and protect his own glory. You know, one of the ways that I think one of the areas, it's, I mean, political, social, um, uh, uh, and personal, we're all tempted to, to lash out, katalaleo, to, to, to degrade others when we feel threatened in any of these areas, right? When I find out you voted for somebody that I find reprehensible, 
I, I have a really hard time not judging you, and you have a really hard time not judging me politically, right? Um, when you seem to be moving toward a different political end that I'm moving toward, it makes me really, really, makes it really hard, right? Uh, socially, when, when you stand on social issues differently than I do, when you look at the same issue I see, but you see it from a different angle, I do. And I'm saying, this is the most important social issue in our time. And you're looking at it and going, yeah, that's an important issue, but actually I think this is the most important social issue in our time. Right. But, but here's, here's where I think, honestly, those, we get worked up about that stuff, but I'll tell you, the area I think this is most difficult is in the area of personal. When someone has hurt me, when someone has defrauded me, when somebody hasn't given me what was my due or has taken from me what was my right, I feel so justified in judging them. I feel so right setting up a court in my mind over them and declaring their shame. Remember, your words don't define their reality. When you set up that court of unforgiveness in your mind and you refuse, refuse to offer forgiveness, you are not in any way entrapping them in judgment. You're entrapping yourself. You are not in any way defining the reality of their existence. You are defining the boundaries of your own sorrow and the lack of your own joy. You need to trust God to be God. That's how you forgive. I will not sit in judgment. That's God's job. I will not set up an altar to my own sorrow and my soul and a prison to my image of who they are or what they've done because in doing so, I'm setting up a false altar that robs me of the joy of the presence of God and creates a prison that entraps the boundaries of my own freedom. We need to trust God to be judge. We need to trust God to be king if we are going to be able to get out of the judgment seat, our addiction to superiority. Thirdly, we need to pursue God's, pursue the gospel call of love instead of the world's call to judge. So this is kind of a practical outworking of the previous two. Um, we live in a culture that is addicted to judging, <laughs> right? The, the reason um, that the, the, the Russian um, propaganda campaign gained so much traction wasn't because it was brilliant in what they were doing, it was because we're addicted to what they were offering. They were simply creating a platform that allowed us to judge. The world tells us that is the way to power. The world tells us that is the way to influence. The world tells us that is you got to keep what is yours and attack what is not. You need to build your own kingdom and, and destroy others. That is a worldly way of valuing people because what it does is it puts me into the mindset where I'm evaluating whether or not you benefit me. Whether or not you make me feel comfortable, whether or not you reflect me to me, and, and if you do, I value you, and if you do, I, 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 I extend a warmth of acceptance and love towards you, and if you don't, I reject you. 
See, when I do that, that, that says a whole lot more about me than it does about you because at that point, I'm no longer operating toward others in love. I am operating toward others in greed. My central question is, is do you benefit me? Do you benefit my agenda? Do you benefit my cause? Do you help me move toward what I want? I'm no longer asking, do I love? I am asking, do I gain? And the gospel calls us to love first and love always. And this means we need to fight to get our butts out of the wrong seat and get them into the right one. We need to fight to get out of the seat of the judge and get back into the seat of the doer of the law of love. I want to remind you of a diagram that I shared uh, a couple months back uh, that I think will be informative here, and it is uh, the diagram of, of uh, law versus grace or control versus love. It's very, very different ways of approaching the world and relationships in it, right? So the path of control is the worldly path of relationships, right? It begins with authority. I have the authority to value your worth. I have the authority to value your opinions. I have the, the authority to determine what is right and wrong. And because of that, you're accountable to my convictions. I begin with that assumption, right? When I'm, when I'm assessing your worth, when I am assessing the value that you bring to me, I, I have the authority to determine what is right and wrong, and, and then you are accountable to me to align with, with what I think is good. And, and here's the thing, because of that, I, I end up affirming what I like. When you agree with me, when you're in line with me, when you reflect me to me, I affirm you and I accept you, right? We move to this, this final zone of, of acceptance. I accept those who agree with me, which means I really only offer affirming love to those that are like me. That means we have litmus tests for love. Political litmus tests, social litmus tests, doctrinal litmus tests, personal litmus tests. And if you pass those tests, you might actually move into the circle of my affection. Listen, when we make love conditional, we create an unsafe environment for people that are different from us. When we sit in the seat of judgment, we create a world in our image, and it becomes only safe to be like us. Christians, this is deadly to grace. And it is deadly to the testimony of the church. It is deadly to the work of the gospel, right? So, so when I heard a pastor, literally heard a pastor saying, you guys, we live in the mission field of the gospel. Have you seen how many Hillary and Bernie bumper stickers are out there? The implication being that if you're not Republican, and if you didn't vote for his chosen candidate, you must be a rank unbeliever in need of the mission work of the gospel, right? When, when a parent makes jokes about people who are gay or dealing with gender dysphoria, when, when people use affection, whether it's parents or spouses, or when we use affection as, as a tool to control behavior, Drawing closer when you're doing the things I like and withdrawing my affection and my presence when you're doing things I don't. When a friend stops hanging out with a friend because that friend started making moral choices you no longer approve of. 
They start doing things you don't like, making choices you don't approve of. Maybe they're immoral. Maybe they're unbiblical. But you withdraw your affection from them. You withdraw your presence from them because you no longer approve of them. Listen to me. You may think you're making a stand for the truth, but you are undermining it. When we withdraw our approval and our acceptance, when we pull back our love and make it conditional, we completely misrepresent the dynamic power of grace. And we undermine the work of the gospel. We undermine the power of grace in the lives of those that we claim that we love. And we undermine the work of grace in our own lives as we sit in the seat of the judge instead of the seat of the doer of the law. Love, it is evil. And we will be accountable. Listen, you guys, if somebody's in pain and they're making choices you don't agree with, if, if somebody is, is different from you, if, if somebody is struggling things you don't struggle with or making choices that you wouldn't make, and in response, you withdraw your affection. What does that say about the nature of love? What does that say about the hope of the gospel? What does that say about the nature and the character of the God you claim to follow? When we make our love conditional, we misrepresent the nature of God, and we distort the message and the experience of grace. Listen, there are times that it's really, really hard to love. Sometimes because of our pride. We just don't want to love this person because we just kind of like feeling superior to them. Sometimes because of our fear. If I love you and you're making the choices you make, where are you going to go? What choices are you going to make next? As if we could control that anyway. Sometimes because it hurts. It's really hard to love somebody who has hurt you and is hurting you. I had to walk with a gal who I had to help her separate from her husband because her husband was being emotionally and spiritually abusive. And one of my primary fights with her in that journey was reminding her that she could not become pridefully judgmental toward the person who was hurting her because that would be death to her own soul. You have to lead with love first and always. Now, that doesn't mean you don't take steps of self-protection. That doesn't mean that you don't confront people on wrong behavior. It doesn't mean that you, you don't have hard conversations, but you don't stop loving which means your heart is going to break and it is going to hurt. It means you're going to have to take up your cross and bear it daily. But here's the good news. As you take up your cross and you follow the Christ of the cross, he will unleash the power of the resurrection within you. And all the things you're trying to get by being the judge, he will give you his grace. He will free you. He will dignify you. He will empower you. And he will be God. We lead with love. We lead with love. All right, I'm going to close with some word of prayer. We'll share communion in a moment. Let me pray for us. 
Father, I thank you that, once again, you are the ultimate example of the exhortations James is bringing to our hearts. You lead with love. Even though you are judge and that seat is yours, you fit it appropriately. <laughs> you call us to the throne of grace instead of the throne of judgment. You call us to be loved in spite of our rebellion. You call us to the sanity of seeing things as they actually are, even though we are determined in our insanity to keep puffing up our pride and exaggerating our strengths and exaggerating others' weaknesses so we can feel better about ourselves by making others smaller in our presence. Lord, you are a humble and powerful God. Will you free us into the power of humility? Will you awaken us to the sanity of love? Will you allow us to be a light on a hill in this dark and broken country? A beacon of grace. People who are determined to love first and love always. So that others might come to know your beautiful love and be freed by your incredible grace. You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment. All right, you guys, we're at that point in the service where we get to share communion together, and we do this very simply here at Trailhead. We come forward and we tear off a piece of the bread, and we dip it in the cup. The broken bread represents the broken body of Christ. The cup represents his spilt blood. And as we dip that bread in and eat it, that represents our need for our Savior that he has provided for us what we desperately need in the death, burial, resurrection of his son, that he is our savior, that he is our hero, that he is the one that delivers us from the insanity of our sin and our addiction to pride, that he will set us free into the glory of his kingdom instead of enslaving us to the indignity of our own.
It is a declaration of hope. It is a declaration of, of faith. It is a declaration of joy. Now, if you're not a follower of Christ this morning, I'm glad you're here, but I'm going to encourage you during this part of the service to just stay in your seat. Respond to God in a way that's authentic to who you are and where you are. This meal is for those who have, who have put their faith in the person and the work of Christ. And if that's not you, we're glad you're here. But we want you to respond to God in a way that is authentic and real. And God will meet you there. On the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, after supper, giving thanks, he took the cup, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you break this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So Christ followers, when you're ready, You're the God of this city. You're the King of these people. You're the Lord of this nation. You are. You're the light in this darkness. You're the hope to the
Well, good morning, Trout Church. Good to see you. Feel free to stand as we sing. To be loved, to be nearer. 
finds it true. And I say to you, he rejoices over more than over the 99 that never went astray. For it was not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And that is the love of our Father that Joel will sing about this Sunday morning. The good and loving mercy. your phone, still your love for, for me. You've been so, so shadow you won't light up, mountain you won't climb up, coming 
Sin did not catch you off guard. There was no <laughs> provision that you didn't provide for. Uh, you met us in our need. And that's why we gather this morning to make much of your name, to prepare our hearts for your word, to be softened by it, to be challenged, to be changed, to grow, and to be comforted. That our greatest enemy has already been taken care of. church, take a moment and greet those around you. Welcome to Trailhead Church. Uh, Brian, I appreciate that passage this morning. It reminds me, that passage from Matthew about the 99, that uh, I, and I hope you realize that you, are that one that he, for whom he left the 99 to seek out and to, uh, to rescue. That's a pretty powerful statement for me. My name's Rich, and I uh, want to welcome everybody here and say hello. If uh, 
you're new to Trailhead Church, we've got a present for you. So uh, back there at Connection Point, you'll find some of these distributed out among the seating, uh, as well as a little booklet that tells you all about Trailhead, answers all your questions, and if not, then there's a website on here, an email on there that you can follow up and, uh, uh, and get them, or questions, ask, find out how you can plug in. But if, whether you're a regular attender or you're new, there's this response card back of the seat in front of you. If you've got a prayer request, you want to pass something along to the church, maybe you've got another follow-up question, that's another way that you can connect. And of course, uh, through that website, through the email, is another way where you can always uh, stay connected. And then lastly, I want to point out in the bulletin, there's some uh, announcements there. Take some uh, time to take a look at those when you get a chance. But I want to remind everyone that next Sunday is set aside as a baptism Sunday. So if this is something that you've had on your mind and you've been thinking about doing, again, back at the connection point, that's the table out there uh, just as you came in the door. Or find one of the, uh, the elders or Pastor Steve, someone, and ask them about, uh, you know, what's this baptism all about? Wouldn't it be awesome next Sunday is Father's Day? So to celebrate Father's Day by being baptism, baptized and to, uh, to honor the father of all fathers be kind of a cool thing to do. So uh, note that, again, the uh, email is on there, the website's on there. <laughs> and there's lots of ways you can reach out and connect, so I hope you'll feel uh, that you're welcome to do that, feel welcomed here today. For our regulars, be sure and greet, uh, greet three people before you leave today. Make sure you tell them hello and, and wish them a blessed week. That's all I have, so with that, I'm going to turn it over to Steve for we'll continue uh, in our service with our offering. All right, guys, as we prepare uh, to take our offering, I um, just want to remind you that uh, your giving equips us um, to be on mission, to carry the love of Christ into our, our neighborhoods and our cul-de-sacs, into our community, but even into our region the surrounding neighborhoods and, and the surrounding communities and even beyond that into uh, the farthest pieces of the world. And we've developed some incredible partnerships and through your giving, through your generosity, you've actually equipped us. Um, one of the areas is uh, we were able to budgetarily set aside $10,000 to, uh, to help create opportunities for people to go on short-term mission down to Honduras uh, at the beginning of next year. You'll be hearing more about that. Um, but a pretty sweet opportunity. We had a Compassion Sunday, if you guys remember that, uh, overwhelming response. We, we are, as a community, sponsoring right around 100 kids um, in Tegucigalpa, Honduras. Um, we're making a significant impact in that community, and, and we want to go down there and develop relationships with, with people in that locale, um, actually doing more work and doing more things to, to just be a blessing uh, in that area. And, and your giving is helping equip us to make that happen. So as you give, I just want you to see that you have the ability to, um, man, use something as temporary um, as money to invest into something as eternal as, as people realizing and experiencing the glory of God and tasting the love of God. So let's give joyfully and, and generously this morning. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll take our offering. Father, we, we thank you that we have the opportunity to partner with you in the mission of the gospel. You don't need us, but you've honored us by allowing us to come alongside. Um, you've entrusted us with this message. You have entrusted us with this incredible power of grace and asked us to be your ambassadors carrying it out into the world. And knowing, Lord, that even as we do, we are changed by the very message we deliver. We are enriched by the very grace we carry. And so I pray, Lord, that you would enrich us this morning as we learn to give 
generously that you would free our hearts from the death grip of greed and you would free us into just the incredible riches of generosity. Free our hearts, um, bless our community, and then through us, Lord, work great blessings in the lives and the communities of others. Bless this offering. Bless this church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Our ushers will come forward and take our offering. All right, well, good morning, guys. My name is Steve, and I am the lead pastor here, and uh, it is my privilege to welcome you. And um, before we dig into the Word this morning, I want to take a few minutes and uh, address uh, really a fairly weighty topic um, that has become, once again, uh, central to the national conversation. Um, I want to talk a little bit about about suicide. Um, Some things have happened this week uh, that have pushed this conversation back to the forefront, and um, so I'm warning you now, I uh, just want to take a few moments and talk about this. I saw this image this morning on Post Secret, um, and uh, I, I think it, 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 that's actually what prompted me um, as I was reflecting on the week. I just want someone to notice I'm listening to my Sad Times playlist on Spotify and ask me if I'm okay. Um, we have an epidemic in our country uh, right now. Um, since 1999, suicide rate has increased uh, 25 to 30 percent, um, depending on what state you're in. Um, it has been a huge issue in certain communities, um, the military community, uh, with, with people returning um, home, uh, but it is, it is spreading throughout our, our country. There were several high-profile suicides this week that have once again pushed this conversation back to the forefront and, and kind of made it a national conversation. Kate Spade, um, famous designer, Anthony Bourdain, uh, TV personality chef, um, and a third one that you probably didn't hear about, Marco Munoz. Marco Munoz was a 39-year-old um, father who was coming to the United States from Honduras. Um, he was fleeing um, political unrest and um, a situation in which his family was unsafe and he was seeking asylum in the United States and uh, the way often the legal way of doing that is actually coming into the United States and presenting yourself to the customs agents and saying declaring that you are seeking asylum Uh, he did that this week he had his three-year-old daughter with him and as he crossed the border agents literally uh, ripped that three-year-old daughter out of his arms and separated the family because that is now the current policy. And um, he was absolutely distraught. And so as a result, they just stuck him in solitary confinement and uh, he committed suicide. That mother and child are now being returned to Honduras, potentially the same community that we are sponsoring and working with fatherless children. These are three different stories three different sets of circumstances, people who have everything and people who have nothing, people 
who seem to have climbed the mountain and people that seem to be being buried by it. But all three are people that were created in the image of God, driven by the same exact drive to experience the fullness of life. They were people created in the image of God to experience the fullness of shalom and blessing, and they were driven, and, and, and they pursued it, and all three of them landed in a position where they despaired of ever experiencing what they so deeply desired. And in being swallowed by that darkness, they gave in to that despair. The suicide rate is an epidemic. It has become the 10th leading cause of death in the United States. So we mourn, we mourn, we mourn the death of these three people, their unique contributions to this world. We mourn with their families and the people they leave behind. We, we mourn and we mourn for the countless others who were swallowed up by the same despair this week. We mourn for the families that have been left behind. We, we mourn. And I am guessing there are many people in this room whose lives have been touched. by the loss of those who were swallowed by this despair. And we mourn with you, your loss and your pain and your suffering. And I think there are many more in this room that are in danger of being swallowed by that despair. They themselves are struggling with the encroaching darkness in their soul. And I want to tell you that this is a safe place to be hurting and to be lonely and to be confused, to feel sorrow, and to not have all the answers. Because we are a community of broken people trying to find wholeness and grace. And we would love to offer to you the gift of that community, the gift of knowing and being known. We have structures that are designed not just to give you more knowledge, not just to make you a better Christian, but to help you experience more grace. Our community groups are our way of helping you move into relationship with others, to connect with people who are struggling in very, very similar ways to you. One of the lies of the darkness is that you're alone in it and that nobody else understands it. And that, that is a lie, and it is through the, the exposure of community, and it is through the, the growing and trust and the learning to love and be loved that that lie is exposed and the darkness is dispelled. And we invite you into community with us. We have intentionally created partnerships, like our partnership with Pathways Counseling, as a way to offer um, real, legitimate services for those that are, are dealing with things that, that they don't know how to deal with on their own. They have hidden tripwires connected to their soul, and every day someone's tricking on them, and it triggers things in you you can't explain and you can't control. We want to come alongside you and help you and just do life with you. We're not here to fix you. We're here to know you and to love you in the midst of it so that we can grow together. So I wanted to pause this morning and just mourn and to acknowledge that this is the reality of who we are as a culture. This is the reality of what's happening in the world around us. And to make it very clear, you are not alone. And it would be our great honor to walk with you and to love you as you learn to trust us and to grow in relationship with us. Let me pray for us again. Father, I thank you that you invite us continually to the table of grace, that even though we live in this broken world, 
you haven't left us in that brokenness. And even though we have treacherous hearts, you have not abandoned us to that treachery. And even though we are confused in our sorrow, Lord, you have not left us. You pursue us that we might learn once again how to be loved. That we might once again receive dignity. That we might be made new. Spirit, will you awaken us to the beauty of that invitation? Will you awaken our hearts to the reality of that love this morning? May we be a community that loves. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, you guys, this morning we're heading over to the book of James. The book of James. So go ahead and grab your Bibles. We're going over to James chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, feel free to grab one off the chairs around you. In our Bibles, we're going over to page 1013, uh, James chapter 4. While you're flipping over there, uh, to kind of help set the stage, there was a recent event that I think actually ties in pretty strongly. Uh, it's become clear that for a period of a year to two years, probably about a two-year window, uh, surrounding the 2016 election, um, that, the, that the United States came under um, a cyber attack from foreign entities who were seeking to undermine the integrity and the stability of our democracy and of our culture. The Russian government specifically waged a cyber attack on the U.S. seeking to um, create some chaos, right? We know that they have, uh, that they hacked DNC servers, they released uh, emails, um, in an attempt to, to affect people, uh, sway an election. Now, we have no idea. We have no idea what effect those actions had. We, we, we have no idea how uh, impactful they were to the outcome of the election. Uh, it may have made no difference at all. Um, but we do know is that it did create chaos. And part of their plan, this is what's interesting, part of their plan was an extensive propaganda campaign targeted at Americans through social media. Uh, in fact, about three weeks ago, Congress released about 3,500 ads that um, Russians put out on social media with the intent of influencing American culture. Um, and when you look them over, which I did, it's a crazy collection. I mean, it literally is a crazy collection of ads. It doesn't seem to make any sense at all, right? You look through there and you're going to find that there are, there are, that they created like Facebook pages that were, that were, um, uh, pro-gun control, right, that we're all about the evil of the AR-15 or the whatever it is, that they, these guns are bad. And then they also created ads that were um, pro-Second Amendment rights. They were all about don't let anybody touch your guns or the world is going to burn down and everyone's going to die, right? They, they created pages that were pro-Black Lives Matter, right, that, that were memorial pages to African-Americans um, who had been um, killed by police or, or other things like that. And then simultaneously, they created pages that were pro-Confederacy. Like, literally, they were all about how it's heritage, not hate, right? And it's a big Confederate flag, right? They, they created pages that were, that were funny. They created pages that were angry. They literally made pages that were both pro-Beyonce and anti-Beyonce, I'm seriously, like, like they had pages that were like, Beyonce's the best thing ever, and then others that were like, no, she's, you know, the, it's crazy. It, it, when you look it over, it's almost like there was some powerful guy in the Russian government who gave a job to his 13-year-old nephew and was like, here's some resources, just go create some problems and see what you can do, right? Let's see what happens. It's just chaotic. It's random. But here's the thing, you guys, it's actually brilliant. 
It's actually brilliant because they really couldn't give a rip who's right or wrong. In fact, in most of these issues, there are no rights and wrong. They, they don't, there, there are shades of opinion. There are perspectives. There are voices. There are, but that, that, they don't care who's right or wrong. They only care about one thing, and that's increasing conflict. And they were brilliant to do that. Their, their goal was to puff up pride. Their goal was to inflame fear, to get you to identify with a tribe and say, these are my people, and get you to, to denigrate another tribe and say, those are the enemies. To look at other Americans, to look at other people, to look at other, other races, to look at other political groups and look at them and say, they are the problem. They are the evil in, in this world. They were appealing to our need to feel superior because we have a need to feel right because we love to judge. See, the Russians didn't create this impulse in us. They just exploited it. They just understood something about human nature and created an opportunity for that human nature to go to work and undermine um, the very things that were tying us together as a democracy. So James this morning, James, as we read our text this morning, is calling us out on this, that there are worldly currents in our heart um, that will carry our tongue away in ways that are damaging and destructive, not just to others, but to ourselves, and ultimately to the glory of God. As followers of Christ, there's something better. As followers of Christ, James is calling us to the freedom of grace, um, instead of the enslavement of, of, of um, belittling others. He is calling us out of our need for superiority. So let's take a look at James chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Uh, I'm going to read these out loud. Go ahead and follow along. Starting at verse 11, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy, but who are you to judge your neighbor? The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. Right? So a little bit of a change in tone from last week. Remember last week? It wasn't family. It wasn't like, hey, brothers. It was like, hey, y'all harlots. Stop being worldly. We're going back to brothers here, right? The Delphoi, that sense of brothers and sisters. Hey, family. Hey, family. Can y'all just stop this? right? Can you just stop speaking evil about each other? Just stop it, right? Just stop saying bad things. Stop tearing each other down. Stop, stop saying all this stuff, and, and, and that's really it, man. That's the point of the message. That's, that's the whole sermon right there, and some of you are like, sweet, shortest sermon ever. Let's go home, right? If it were only that easy, right? Have you ever tried to stop saying evil things about people? Have you ever tried to stop Here's the thing, it's harder than you think it is. The Greek word for um, speaking evil things, there's one Greek word that translates that phrase, it's katalaleo, and katalaleo um, is a word that means evil speech, right? It's a word that, that means speech that is designed to slander or tear down, to disrepute uh, or, or, or otherwise hurt someone. It includes lying, misrepresenting, exaggerating, insults, derogatory jokes, just generally casting shade on someone, right? To, to, to disrespect them, to undermine them, to make them look bad, to make their argument sound stupid, to make their whole generation look dumb, to make them less threatening, 
right? Katalaleo. Now, here's the thing. It actually covers an incredibly broad form of communications. It covers spoken word, right? It covers the things that you say, the things that you would say to somebody when you're angry and, and, and you're tearing them down, the things that you would say about a person when um, you don't like them or, or, or maybe you just get a little bit of pleasure out of seeing somebody, you know, torn down a little bit, right? You ever, you ever do that, right? Like, hey, did you hear what so-and-so said? Hey, did you hear what so-and-so did, right? We call that gossip, gossip and slander. There's usually an incredibly thin line between the two because I seriously doubt you wouldn't verify that with the person you're talking about before you shared it, uh, which means it's potentially slander, um, which lying and exaggerating and, and, and it's spoken word, right? So katalaleo, the things that we say that are designed to minimize somebody, tear them down, remove their voice, right? Whether it's an active attack toward them or a, a passive sharing of information about them or or, but it goes beyond that. It's not just the spoken word, it's also the written word. You know, when you sit down with your pen and you write those epically long letters, wait, we don't do that anymore. Um, no, when you sit down to type and, uh, and you hit send and you publish your thoughts for the entire world to read, right? It's incredibly fast how quickly we can take our thoughts from our head and publish them in a very public platform. Um, but when you do that, when you use your words to attack or to undermine, when you reshare that meme or, or, or that saying that makes your side look good and you think, man, that's a, such a good burn, it makes them look so stupid. You're using your words to tear down. You're using your words to, to undermine, to make someone disreputable, to, to remove their, their, um, their dignity, right? Your, it's the written word. But you guys, it gets worse. It, it also talks about the words you never actually say. You know the ones you think, but never actually come out of your mouth, right? When you, when you see somebody, and in the back of your mind, you don't even want to acknowledge it. You're already saying things about them, about the way they dress, about the people they hang out with, uh, about the choice of food, you know. I mean, we can be judgmental about the silliest things, can't we, right? We look down on somebody who's like, can you believe he still wears cargo pants? Who wears cargo pants? What do you got? You know, pack, you know, go out on a camping trip and pack extra food on your, on your legs. What, why do you need cargo pants? Adults don't wear cargo pants, right? I mean, you get me. I mean, we can, we can become so judgmental about everything. It's even the stuff you don't say. So what I'm saying is we can't summarize this with your grandma's old saying, if you have nothing nice to say, don't say anything nice, don't say anything at all, right? That doesn't, that doesn't cut it here, right? Because even if you hold your tongue, even if you're able to not say the words, if you think them, you're guilty of violating this commandment. It's, it's the words you say. It's the words you write. It's the words you think. And here's the thing, you guys. If you think them, you're still communicating them. They come out in your face. They come out in your body language. They come out in your choices to move towards some people or away from some people. It comes out in the way that you treat people, the way you flatter some people, and the way that you just kind of tolerate others. It comes out. We are communicating nonstop. And this word covers all of those forms of communication. Brothers, do not speak evil words. Do not kataleleo one another. We're constantly communicating. And we're prone to this, right? We're prone to this. Certain people... I mean, let's be honest, there are certain people we just think don't deserve respect. There are certain people that just don't deserve my respect. They don't deserve dignity. They don't, they don't deserve basic honor. They just don't. They have disqualified themselves from the realm of my respect. That could be because of political 
positions, they voted for so-and-so, and I just can't believe anybody would vote for that person. It might be because they take a certain social position, right? They're, they have deep convictions, like they may hate different sins than I hate, right? I'm really big. This sin right here is the sin everybody has to hate, and we should all be upset about it. Well, no, they're actually upset about this sin over here, and I'm not really that interested in that sin, or I don't think it's as bad as they do. So, so they've disqualified themselves. It, it could be from doctrinal issues. Christians are really good at this. Well, you don't believe the same things that I believe about God? You have a different perspective? On, 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 it's right there in the text. What are you, an idiot? Do you not read the Bible? It could be personal. And, and this is one of the areas where it can be most difficult. The others appeal to our pride and our fear. Man, this one, this one, this one's rooted in our identity. Um, when somebody has defrauded you in some way, hasn't given you something you do deserve or held back something that you, you, you did deserve, when they take something from you that you, you should have been able to keep or they kept something from you that you should have been able to have, when they robbed you of your dignity, when they robbed you of your autonomy, when they robbed you of your, of your personal well-being, men, we feel incredibly justified and speaking evil words about them because they've disqualified themselves from deserving my respect. They've disqualified themselves from deserving being treated as basic humanity. They, I, don't, I, don't, right? I don't have to love them. I don't have to. Katalaleo. You guys, how hard is it to not do this? To curtail speech but still nurture the bitterness and the pride and the fear that drives it is, is that doesn't obey this, Right? Because it's not just about the words we speak, it's about the source of those words. It's about the heart that produces those words, right? So we have to ask a deeper question. Why are we so driven to speak evil words? Why are we so driven to feel superior toward others, to look down on certain people or certain classes of people or certain groups of people? Why? Well, Verse 11 tells us, right? Take a look again at verse 11. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against the brother or judges his brother, by the way, that, that or there, that, those are two equal things. Those aren't two separate activities, they're the same activity, right? The one who speaks evil or judges, yeah, the same thing, right? Um, speaks evil against the law and judges the law, but if you judge the law, you are no longer a doer of the law, but a judge. You want to know why we have such a hard time not speaking evil words? Because we love to judge. I mean, we just love to sit in the seat of the judge. James tells us there are two seats we can sit in. One seat is the doer of the law. Now, remember, James, when he's talking about the law here, isn't talking primarily about Ten Commandments and the rest of that. He's talking about the royal law. He's already established that. The royal law, uh, that, that you are to love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and you are to love your neighbor as you love yourself. Right? It's the law of love. Now, if you obey the law of love, you're going to have no problem with the Ten Commandments <laughs> because all of those commandments flow out of love for God and love for others, right? So it's the law of love. He's saying you can either be sitting in the seat of the doer of the law of love or you can be sitting in the seat of the judge. And we like the seat of the judge because the one who's sitting in the seat of the doer is under the law. They submit themselves to the law. They have an obligation to that law. They, they know that they must be regulated by love. They must be transformed by love and working that love out in their lives. And, and that's uncomfortable and it's difficult and it challenges me and it makes me say things I don't want to say and keeps me from saying things I do want to say. I like the judge. 
Because when I'm sitting in the seat of the judge, I'm above the law, and I'm above you. It allows me to measure you and evaluate you and determine your worth. And I can determine who's worth my affection and my time, and I can determine who's not. I can determine who's worthy of basic respect and who's not. I can determine who's worthy of being mocked, and I can determine who's worthy of being praised. I love the seat of the judge because it allows me to sit above looking down. And it gives me a sense of power and control and comfort, doesn't it? When we judge people, man, there's just something comforting about that. Like, it just feels so powerful. Like, I can just judge you, right? I'm so superior to you. My arguments are so much more persuasive than yours. My memes are so much funnier than yours. My, my position is so much more logical than yours. I am better than you. We just like it. We just like it. It gives us the illusion that we know what is ultimately right and wrong. It gives us the illusion. See, it flatters the lie, the Genesis chapter 3 lie, that we can, in fact, be like God. That's the lie our first parents believed in Genesis chapter 3, right? We don't have to be under God. We can be like God. We don't need to revolve around the glory of God. We can revolve around our own glory. We can establish our own kingdom. We can build our own security. I can live life on my terms, in my way, in my time. I can, I can achieve the shalom of God. I can achieve the fullness of life apart from the God who gives it. Through my own accomplishments, through my own glory, through my own wisdom, through my own knowledge, through my own learning through my own wittiness, whatever it is you're looking to. In that moment of superiority where we are mocking the weaknesses of others and delighting in their smallness, we are simply reinforcing the lie that we can be like God. We can silence them. We can ridicule them. We can discredit them. We can humiliate them because we're sitting in the seat of the judge and passing judgment over them. And we're looking at them and we're saying to them, you deserve humiliation because you don't measure up to my standards because you don't agree with my perspectives because you don't think what I think. You you deserve humiliation. You deserve harsh correction. You deserve silent rejection. We have weighed them and found them wanting and feel completely justified in our katalaleo, in our evil speaking of them. Now, let's admit something right up front. When I speak words of judgment towards someone, I am not actually establishing their worth. In fact, I'm not revealing anything about them, right? If I go into an art museum and I look at a piece of art and I'm like, oh, what rubbish. I don't know anything about the artist. I don't know anything about the the history of that art. I don't know anything about why it was chosen to be. I don't know anything. I just look at it. That is rubbish. Do I, in fact, change the intrinsic value of the art? Am I revealing anything about the art at all? No, I'm revealing something about me. See, when we practice harsh speaking, when we practice judging others, we're not revealing anything about them, but we're revealing an awful lot about ourselves. Now, if somebody hears my words of judgment and internalizes them, they may believe that lie. They may take my criticism as truth and ingrain it in their perception of themselves, which is a a secondary evil that results from my evil. But the reality is my words don't define them. My words reveal me. That means in all of those areas that you are absolutely driven to superiority, 
to speak words of condemnation, to speak words uh, of humiliation, to speak words that degrade, to tear down, to humiliate. You are saying things about yourself. You are revealing things about your own heart. You're not saying anything or revealing anything about the other. You know why? Because you're not God. You're pretending to be, and it may feel like you have godlike power in defining the worth of an individual, but you're, you're not, right? And when you're doing that, you're no longer sitting in the seat of the doer of the law. You're sitting in the seat of the judge over the law. Verse 12, James goes on, and he says, who's actually sitting in that seat? Verse 12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Uh, James is asking us kind of a, a simple question. Um, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? When you repost that meme, when you mock that person, when you degrade that group of people, who, who, who do you think you are? Who are you pretending to be? Whose seat are you actually in? Because I don't think you want to be there. Because when the king shows up, and we're acting like we're him? We're going to have to give an answer to, for our pride. We're going to have to actually speak to the true judge and give account for how we were pretending to be him and for the damage we did while we were sitting in that seat. See, he's going to show up, and here's the thing. He's the one that can actually save and destroy. See, his words actually establish worth or remove it. His words actually establish dignity or remove it. He has the ability to speak things into existence or completely wipe them out. He's the one that sits in that seat. He's the one that can bring true judgment. He is the one that righteously evaluates what is good and what is bad, what will last and what will not, what's worthy of praise and what is worthy of condemnation. And it's a terrifying thing for him to show up and find out we've been pretending to be him. See, all we can do is pretend to be God. God's actually God. There's a book called Jude in the end of your Bible back here next to James. Uh, it's an interesting little book. Um, it's only one chapter long. Uh, it's a pretty fascinating study. And in it, there's an interesting story. And this is what I want to highlight. Uh, in Jude, uh, verse 9, uh, there's only one chapter, so you don't get a chapter. Uh, it's just Jude 9. Um, in Jude 9, uh, there's a story of Michael, uh, the archangel. Let's go ahead and put that verse up. Let me read this. But when, when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. All right, so don't ask me where this story is in the Old Testament. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know where Jay, I don't, I don't know where Jude, I don't know. I don't know. And I don't care. <laughs> not, my, not my concern today. What I find fascinating is what's going on here. You guys, this is Michael the Archangel. Think about that for a sec. Michael the Archangel. Michael the Archangel. Michael the Archangel was with God at the creation of the world. Michael the Archangel sang the praise of God at the creation of mankind. Michael the Archangel has actually stood in the very presence of the glory of God, singing the glory of God. Michael the Archangel saw all things before they were, they were ruined by rebellion because he was created among the first things. Michael the Archangel is pretty freaking powerful, right? 
a being of immense glory and immense power. And he's arguing with the devil. All right, you don't like gun control advocates, but they're not the devil, right? This is the devil. You can't get more wrong than the devil. You can't be stupider than the devil. You can't be more theologically insane than the devil. You cannot be in the worst camp than actually being the devil, right? We compare people to Hitler. We compare Hitler to the devil. It's the worst you can be. So you got Michael the archangel, this being of immense power and glory, who's been in the very presence of God, speaking to the devil, the worst rebel, the one who is most degraded, theologically insane, stupid. And yet he does not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment against him. He did not presume to take it upon himself to speak words of condemnation. You know why? It says it's a blasphemous judgment. Michael the archangel wouldn't put his butt into the seat of the king. Michael the archangel would not take the seat of the judge because he knows who sits in that seat, and it's not him. It is not his right, it is not his place to call out the judgment of another. That's God's right. And Michael the archangel saw that for him to do that would have in fact been blasphemy because he would have been declaring himself equal with God in order to do so. Instead, the strongest thing he would say is the Lord rebuke you. He appealed to the judge. He appealed to the one who actually sits in that seat. He submitted himself to the authority of the one who has the authority. And he said, you know what? God will take care of you, as God always does. I, the Lord will lift you up or tear you down. The Lord will bless you or curse you. The Lord will do whatever the Lord will do. That is not my place. That is not my job. That is not my seat. I will allow God to be God. If Michael the archangel wouldn't feel comfortable calling out the devil, why in the world are we so comfortable calling out absolutely everybody about absolutely everything? We are so incredibly comfortable mocking, disreputing, tearing down, insulting, minimizing, degrading, exactly do we think we are? Who in the world do we think we are? You guys, this is the heart of worldliness. Trying to get the blessing of God apart from the presence of God. Trying to get the fullness of life apart from submission to the glory and the authority and, and, and coming into the presence of God. Revolving around our own glory instead of living for the glory of God. This is the essence of worldliness. This is double-minded worldly religion. When we as Christians operate according to the principles of the world, trying to claim the blessings of the kingdom of Christ. When we are actively using the power of this world as if we were God and claiming that we are, in fact, acting in the name of God. When we are claiming to follow God, but then setting ourselves up as if we were God, 
when we approach God not as a doer of the law of love, but as a judge of the law, applying the law to others in whatever way seems fit to us, we dishonor the very God we claim to follow. All right, so how do we obey this command? I, I think we can see now that that's kind of a challenge, isn't it? Kadalaleo, man, it just flows out of us, doesn't it? This evil speaking, this sense of superiority, this need to judge, it just flows out of us. I might be able to control my tongue, but I sure can't control my thoughts. It just flows out of me. So how do we stop judging others? How do we obey this command? All right, there's only one way. We have to recognize that this is not an issue of the tongue. It is an issue of the heart. And we need to go after the root instead of trying to control the fruit. So let me give you a few things that have actually come out from our previous studies of James. First, you got to be loved in order to love. See, the problem with Catalaleo is that we're not operating in love. We're operating in pride. But if we're going to actually operate in love, it's not just a matter of deciding to love. You can't choose to love. You can't make yourself just suddenly become this most generous, loving, gracious. You can't. You have to be loved in order to be transformed to be freed into love. You have to be loved in order to love, right? It's what James said in chapter 1. You have to receive with meekness in an ongoing way the power of the implanted word, which is his basic way of saying it's not just about believing the gospel to go to heaven. You've got to believe the gospel. Like every single day, every single minute, you got to keep believing the gospel. This radical story that there is a God who loves you so freely, so ridiculously, so, so recklessly that you can be set free from your guilt and your shame. And you can be transformed. He loves you even though you don't deserve to be loved. He sets you free in ways you could never claim. Right? Listen, he measures you in mercy and he blesses you in grace. He measures you in mercy, and he blesses you in grace. Mercy is when God doesn't give us what we do deserve. He doesn't give us what we deserve. He measures you in mercy. When God measures you, he applies the person and the character of Christ. You measure up. You fall into the realm of his acceptance. You are in the circle of his love. You are invited to the table of his grace. He measures you in mercy, and then he blesses you in grace. Grace is when God gives us what we don't deserve. He doesn't give us what we do deserve, and then he, he blesses us what we don't deserve. He blesses us so abundantly with so much more than we could ever earn, right? He we don't get what we deserve, and we get what we could never earn. Man, that's the love of God. And if that doesn't do something to your heart, you're not receiving it as love. You might be receiving it as a means to an end. There are a lot of people who are Christians simply because they want the benefits of Christianity. There are a lot of people who claim to follow Christ, but it's not because they've actually been undone by the love of God. It's because they've heard this offer, and they're like, oh yeah, I'll take that too. When we are undone by grace, it changes us. When you're, when you're actually receiving, here's the thing, you can't receive love and not be changed. You can't. Otherwise, you're not receiving the love. We must receive the love to be set free in love. We need to keep believing the gospel to be undone by its power because it's only the gospel, it is only the love of God that can undo your pride and humble your need to judge others. It is only in seeing how radically loved you are 
how much you needed mercy, how much you needed grace, that you will come to extend it to others that you don't, in your own opinion, think deserve it. You will come to see that there's only one type of person. A person worthy of rejection from the holiness of God. A person unable to earn what they could never claim. That's the camp I'm in. And if I recognize that I need grace that radically, it allows me, it humbles me to recognize that I'm not that different from other people who also need radical grace. I have to be loved to love. Secondly, I need to trust God to be God. I need to trust God to be God. One of the reasons that I'm so intent on judging people is I don't trust God to do it. I feel like I need to have strong opinions about everything people do, the way they dress, the things they believe, their doctrinal convictions, their social convictions, the way they work those convictions out on social media, what they wear, how they wear it. What, I just, I, I don't trust God to be God. So I try to climb into his seat and be God. See, we have to trust God to bring justice where justice is right. We need to trust God to extend grace, even in ways we don't like it. See, that's the thing with grace, isn't it? Somehow we just kind of subtly believe we deserve it. Man, we hate it when he gives grace to people that we think don't. I know you love me, God, but you love them too. See, that's when we want to climb into the seat and be like, no, 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 no. That person's outside of the realm of grace. That person's outside... What they did is so bad. What they did was so evil. What they did. We have to trust God to be God. Trust God to bring true justice. Now, this doesn't mean we don't speak for justice. Right? God calls us. In fact, that's right. He calls us to stand with those that are exiled, to stand with those that are on the margins, to, to stand with those who have no power, to give voice to those who have no voice, to, use, to leverage our privilege for, for those who have none, right? To, to use our social clout to benefit those who have been unjustly robbed of social clout. That, that's one of the calls and the outworkings of the gospel, right? To work for justice and mercy. But in doing so, we can never lose sight of the humanity and the dignity of those who oppose us. In doing so, we can never so degrade those who are on the other side of the issue that we start to think of them as subhuman, unworthy of the very grace of God, as if somehow I were better. We can never allow our pride to undercut our love. We need to let God be God. We need to speak our mind and and work for our convictions without allowing our pride to bring the cancer of bitterness, self-righteousness, and judgment We need to love. It is love that compels us to work for justice, and it is love that compels us to treat others with dignity. And it is that same love that should be coursing through all of our activities. We need to trust God to be judge and king. Thirdly, we need to pursue the gospel's call to love instead of the world's call to judge. And and this is kind of the outworking of the first two. We live in a society that absolutely loves to judge, don't we? We live in a society that is addicted to self-righteousness. We love to be superior. That's what's going on in our culture. That's what the Russian propaganda machine was seeking to tap into is is our desperate need to be right. Our desperate need to win. Our desperate need to be hashtag winning. Which by definition means you're losing. Right? My side is superior. There is a, a current coursing through the heart of our culture that is incredibly difficult not to get caught up in. 
And it's a current of self-righteous judgment and superiority and degrading of the other. It is a worldly way of valuing people that basically says, this is where it begins, and this is the manifestation of its evil. What it basically says is, if you benefit me, I'm for you. If you're with me, I love you. If you reflect me, I'll be with you. Politically. Socially. Personally. And what it basically is saying is that I don't value you. I value you insofar as you reflect me. I don't love you. I love the way you make me feel about me. I love the way you help me accomplish my goals. I love the way you help me create a coalition that gets me what I think I need in order to achieve the shalom of God apart from the presence of God. It is my way of saying that I need you, but only, only insofar as you serve me. That is the absolute opposite of the call of the gospel, and it is completely incongruent with it. The gospel calls us to love first and love always, to, to give dignity as a gift continually, to not wait for people to earn our respect before we give them the dignity of their humanity, but to say, I give you the gift of grace in the same way I needed the gift of grace. I extend to you love first and always. That's how we become doers of the law instead of judges over it. To see that our first and primary obligation is to operate in love, to be loved by God and operate in love toward others. In order to do that, we're going to have to recognize the ways that we subtly undermine that. I want to show you a graphic. I shared this, um, I don't know, a couple months ago. Just to remind you, I think it's a pretty powerful illustration of the different ways we approach um, relationships, right? It can, it's the difference between control and love, law and grace, right? Law and, and, and being a judge of the law is an issue of control. And I approach life through authority, right? I have the authority to value your worth. That's my, that's my, when I'm judging people, don't I just assume that? I have the authority to judge you. I have the authority to value your worth. I have the authority to value your opinions and, and then by extension value you yourself. Therefore, you are accountable to my convictions. I have strong convictions about this. And I have strong convictions about this. And, and because I have authority to judge you if you don't agree with those convictions, then I have the, um, the authority then to affirm or not affirm. If you agree with them, I affirm you. If you don't, I withdraw. I withhold my affirmation. And for those who I affirm, then I move forward with acceptance. I, I, I accept them. I mean, I accept everything about them, but I accept their humanity. I accept their dignity, right? I, I communicate an affirming love to them, right? If you meet these criteria, then you come into the circle of my affection. That is worldly, because what it does, it sets litmus tests for love. I have political tests and social tests and doctrinal tests and personal tests, and, 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 and what it does, it makes our love conditional. And when our love becomes conditional, we create an unsafe environment for anyone who's different from us. 
It's an unsafe environment for someone who has different convictions than we do. If they want to be loved by us, they have to hide those convictions. They have to pretend to be somebody they're not. They have to pretend they have convictions they don't have. And I've just described many of your Thanksgiving meal dinners. Because we have to pretend in order to be accepted. It creates an unsafe space which actually undermines genuine intimacy and undercuts the genuine work of the gospel. When we sit in the judgment seat and create a world like this, it's a world created in our image where we only tolerate those who are similar to us and are moving in the same direction we're going. You guys, this is deadly, deadly, deadly to grace. Christians, we culturally in America, man, we are the most guilty. We've been given the most grace and we are the most guilty. You know, I had a pastor friend telling me about his, his environment, kind of in the heart of the Bible Belt. And he's like, oh, yeah, man, all I got to do is remind it. All I got to do is, is go out into my, into my neighborhood to remind, be reminded that we live in the mission field. I see all those, those Hillary H's and Bernie stickers. We are in the heart of the mission field. And subtly what he's saying is that anybody who doesn't vote Republican, who doesn't think like he thinks, can't obviously be a believer definitely can't be a recipient of grace. When a parent makes jokes about people who are gay or people who are dealing with gender dysphoria, they create an unsafe environment. When we relate to our kids or our spouses, in ways that we use affection as a tool to control behavior. I give you my affection when you do what I want and I withdraw it when you don't. You get happy dad when you're a good kid and and you kind of get judgmental, angry, withdrawn dad when you don't. When a friend stops hanging out with a friend because suddenly they've decided to make some moral choices that that friend no longer approves of. Happens all the time in Christian circles where somebody will, I don't know, start sleeping with their boyfriend or something, and somebody else will be all like, hey, that's against the Bible, you're sinning, you should stop that, and they don't, and they're like, well, I'm just not gonna hang out with you anymore. I will withdraw my affection, I will withdraw my presence to make sure you know that I don't approve. We think we're making a stand for truth, but in all reality, we're undermining it. When we withdraw our acceptance and our approval, when we make love conditional on people performing the way we demand they perform or believe what we demand they believe or do what we demand they do or look the way we demand they look, we completely misrepresent the dynamic power of love and the reality of the gospel. We undermine the power of grace in the lives of those we claim to love. And we undermine the power of grace in our own hearts. It is evil. Because when we do this, we take the seat of God and we stand in opposition to God. You guys, when... when When do people need to most know we love them? Generally when they're in the greatest pain 
We're in the greatest danger of being attacked by condemnation or rejection. And yet that's the very time we often withdraw our affection in the name of standing for truth or in the name of, of correcting their behavior, in the name of fixing them. We become the tools of the enemy, the tools of Satan. When we withdraw our love at the very moment they most desperately need it. What are we saying about the hope of the gospel when we do that? What are we saying about the power of the love of God when we do that? See, when we make our love conditional, we misrepresent the very nature of God. And we distort grace to them and in our own lives. Yes, we have this is that's, we gotta fight to stay in the right seat. We have to fight to stay in the seat of the doer of the law of love and not become one who sits over the law administering judgment. We have to fight to stay in that seat, and it will be a fight. I was walking with a young woman that, that tragic situation. I had to help her as she was confronting a husband who was spiritually and emotionally abusive. And as we confronted him about his abuse, uh, he, 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 he only lashed out and became more violent with his words and more, more damaging with, with his intentions to the point that we had to help her get away. One of the greatest battles we had through that entire thing is I had to fight with her so that she would not foster within her own heart a sense of superiority, bitterness, and judgment toward the one who was abusing her. For her to grow in grace, she had to extend grace. For her to grow in grace, she could not lose love. Now, she needed to separate. She needed to step away. He needed to stop abusing, and he needed to be held accountable for his abuse. But in that process, her heart would be malformed and distorted and, and her intentions perverted if she gave herself over to bitterness toward the very person who was abusing her. For her to experience the power of grace in the midst of that suffering, she had to learn to continue to extend grace. That does not mean she continued to allow him to abuse her but it does mean that she never allowed, she had to fight to not allow her heart to grow in prideful superiority and judgment toward him. She had to learn how to pity his weakness. She had to learn to love the glory even though in the moment it was covered by the ruin of his sin. She needed to continue to see that he was a man created in the image of God even though in that moment he had no idea how to effectively image the very God he claimed to follow. We must fight to love. We must fight to give grace. Because it's only in the giving of grace that we grow in grace. It is only in, in, in sitting in the seat of the doer of the law of love that we are transformed by that love, that the riches of the grace of God are unleashed in our lives. And it's going to feel like death. It feels like death when you, when you get out of the seat of judgment, when someone has hurt you, when someone has done something that's defrauded you, and you feel so right sitting over them in the courtroom of your mind, judging them, condemning them, humiliating them, to step out of that seat. It feels like death. 
It feels like going to the cross and bearing my cross. But the good news is, is any time you go to the cross to bear the cross, you're never bearing it alone. You're bearing it with the one who already bore it for you. He is walking with you, suffering in your suffering, feeling your pain, identifying with your need for justice because he's the one who can bring it. And the good news is, is on the other side of the cross is resurrection. On the other side of learning how to die to your need to judge is the flourishing and the fullness of life that you're trying to get to in the wrong way. Brothers and sisters, we need to lead with love and always love. I'm going to close this word of prayer. And uh, we're going to share communion in a moment. But let me pray for us first, create a, a space for reflection. Father, I thank you that um, you, once again, are the very model of the thing that we're being called to. James doesn't command us to do anything that you have not already done. Even though you actually sit in the seat of the judge, even though you have righteous judgment, even though you are the one who has been ultimately profaned and blasphemed by our rebellion. You are the one we lie against with our behavior. You are the one we judge as we pretend to judge others. We reject your authority. We reject your presence. We reject your glory for the broken image of our broken kingdoms. And yet, you love us. And yet, you lead with love and always love. And you call us to respond to that love. You call us back to the sanity of humility. You call us to stop pretending we're you. That we might be restored once again to a place where we can taste genuine flourishing and genuine fullness of life. Spirit, will you humble our hearts this morning? Will you give us the sanity of humility? Will you clear our eyes of the pride that makes us think that we can define another person's worth by setting up the courtroom of our minds and degrading them in our imagination? Will you free us from creating prisons that only imprison ourselves? And will you free us into the beautiful freedom and beauty of grace where we have nothing to hide and no one to impress. Well, we are not exposed and vulnerable because you are our rock and a shield about us. And we can hide under the covering of your wings. Spirit, will you call us to that? You guys take a few minutes and pray. We'll share communion in a moment.